Oh, would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's Word and turn to page one in your Bibles as we begin a new sermon series today in the book of Genesis. It's our normal practice here at Redeemer to preach God's whole counsel, and that means preaching from both Testaments, preaching from the various genres of revealed truth in Scripture. And so in the last couple of years, we've walked through the Gospel according to Luke in about 18 months. We spent the last few weeks of this summer walking through shorter books in the Bible, the prophet Habakkuk, little letters in the New Testament of Titus and Jude. And we jumped this morning into Genesis chapter 1 to begin a series that should take us, should the Lord tarry, until roughly Labor Day of next year, a full year in this 50-chapter book, which I know will be fast to some of you to get through it in a year. might be quite slow to others of you to get through it in a year. And this morning, what we want to deal with is God's creation of all things in verse 1 of chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. It is a long text. It is a full and rich text, and I do want to read all of it in your hearing this morning, so you may need to strengthen your back and stiffen your legs along the way. If you need to sit, that's just fine as well. But let us hear now as I read the text and pray for our time, and then we begin. Let us hear now for the God who spoke the world into existence by His Word speaks to you now through that very Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning. The first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, 
the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And he blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us bow in prayer together. Father, we do bow before you now, proclaiming and confessing that you indeed are sovereign that you alone are creator, that you are the majestic ruler, that you are the all-powerful, mighty sovereign who speaks to us now as we come to a text that declares your singular holiness and transcendent glory. Give us a sight of it that we may live. Lift our eyes to its truth. Open our ears to your word that we may behold the true riches of creation and even see the firstborn over all creation, Jesus Christ, in whom we have life everlasting. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The date was December 24th, 
1968. Kids, Christmas Eve, 1968. Dinners, parties, festivities were continuing along as normal, all full of fun and riotous laughter until it was almost as though the earth went silent. For what burst over the airwaves that night, Christmas Eve, 1968, was a broadcast that became the most watched broadcast in television history, at least up until that point. One out of every three people on earth were tuned in to this broadcast. It was a live broadcast of the Apollo 8 mission. The three-man crew of Bill Anders, Frank Borman, and Jim Lovell were the first humans to reach the moon and orbit around it. And they were broadcasting live these images of Earth and images of the moon that no human being had ever seen before. And eventually at the end of their broadcast, it came time to sign off, to give some sort of conclusion. And there had been some degree of debate among the people at NASA and the powers that be in the space industry what these astronauts should say at the sign-off moment. And they eventually decided to just kind of leave it up to the astronauts, saying only, make sure it's appropriate. So when they got to the end, Bill Anders said this. One out of every three people on earth listening, tuning in to this most momentous occasion, he said, for all the people on earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the three astronauts proceeded to read through the first ten verses of Genesis chapter 1, leaving, in a sense, leaving the earth awestruck and amazed at the creative force of the God that we proclaim is Lord of all. And it's that kind of sense that we ought to all have when we come to Genesis chapter 1. Awestruck amazement. Behold your king. Look upon the majestic ruler of all creation. Because surely there isn't many, if any, texts in Scripture that are more universally known than what we look at this morning. And surely there aren't many, if any, texts in Scripture that are so simultaneously known and debated as Genesis chapter 1. Because our text today is very much a battleground text in our culture. That's even a battleground text for many Christians. I mean, consider the questions that you might have even as you come in here this morning, or maybe have encountered before related to God's creation of all things in Genesis chapter 1. Questions I've often heard along the way. You mean to tell me you Christians think everything came from words of a divine being? You mean to tell me that He created everything we see in six 24-hour days? I mean, honestly, the sun was not even set until day four. How could He even reckon day and time in days one, two, and three? You mean to tell me this is what you believe? And we say yes. That is what we believe. Because what we come to this morning is less a text about how long it actually took to create the universe. We come to a text today that is very much concerned with how it actually happened and who made it happen. 
Uh, we come to a text that's meant to tell us this simple truth. In the theme of God's creation of all things, it announces to us that our God is Lord of all. Our God is Lord of all. There's no maverick molecule, autonomous animal, independent individual in the universe. He owns all of it because He created everyone and everything. Our God is Lord of all. And we're meant to see that and we're meant to be struck with this kind of awestruck wonder that yes, that is how He did it. So we may quibble along the way about exactly how long it took or maybe other details, but we have to say this, don't we? That this is what we believe about God's work of creation. He created all things out of nothing by the word of His power in the space of six days and all very good. And we're going to see how that even sets apart our Christian faith in quite stunning ways. So the text really has three simple parts. We see in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1, God created. Then verse 3 through 31 of chapter 1, God spoke that creation into existence. And then in verse 1 through 3 of chapter 2, God rested. And we want to understand exactly what it means that God rested there on the seventh day. So first we begin with the truth that God created. Look again at the beginning of verse 1. In the beginning, God. You almost want to put a period there, don't you? In the beginning, God. Uh, kids, you may have noticed as we read the text just a few minutes ago, how many times this word God shows up in our 34 verses? If you just go through later on today and count them, you'd have 35 times that the word God is used in 34 verses, telling us that this is a text about whom? God. God was there in the beginning, and nothing else was there in the beginning. God was there in the beginning, and no one else was there in the beginning. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He exists outside and independent of everything else. He's before all things. He sustains all things. He is the king. He is the creator. He is the sovereign who created the heavens and the earth. Ancient Near Eastern religions at this time when Moses would have been writing the book of Genesis were very much interested in the creation of the world. They all had their own account of creation. But what was unique about this story of the Judeo-Christian faith was it was the story of one God creating all things, not the story of many gods creating most things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we're meant to see something there in verse 2 as it begins about this kind of wilderness nature of creation before God starts to form it, almost as though a potter takes the clay and makes it into exactly what he wants. Because notice what verse 2 says, and the earth was without form and void. I told my children last night that the uh, Hebrew way of saying this was essentially, and the earth was tohu and bohu. And they found it rather Dr. Seuss-like and incredibly comical. But it's almost the exact opposite connotation and tone of what we should feel of tohu and bohu. Because it communicated chaos, emptiness, formlessness, darkness. These were the marks of creation. It's this kind of wilderness threat, this ominous tone that really is just telling us that creation there at the very beginning, before God forms it, before he feels it, as he's working out his sovereign purposes, it's not fit for mankind. And if you think of Genesis 1, and we ought to do this, think of it as this sweeping symphony of God's creative power after this kind of declarative note of in the beginning God. There's this minor key movement 
that comes underneath at the beginning of verse 2. But it's not long until bright major tones start to pierce that darkness and chaos. Because look what we're told at the end of verse 2. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Uh, students, there's an image there in the Hebrew of this idea, this is where the word for spirit comes from, of this kind of mother bird, this mother hen, who's hovering, spreading her wings over her brood, and this idea of God's all-powerful, all-creagent agent, the Holy Spirit, in the arena, ready to move and act according to God's sovereign purposes. This is the God who created the heavens and the earth. And that God created the heavens and the earth by speaking. By speaking in verse, 30, uh, verse 3 through 31. It was in 1927 that a professor in Belgium made a stunning discovery that shook the physics community. Per his calculations and studies and research, he said that there was a time in the way distant past when the universe was just like this single dot. And then it all began to expand, to grow, to get big. And it's a theory that became popularly known as the Big Bang Theory. And he had a lot of things right, but not everything right, because it did begin with a bang, didn't it? But that bang was a personal word. That bang was a creative, authoritative announcement of verse 3. Look at what he says, and let there be light. And there was light. Verse 4 and 5, And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness He called night, and there was evening, and there was morning. The first day. So you want to notice something here, just in verses 3 through 5, about the creative pattern of God as He is creating the universe. You see, it begins with this kind of spoken word, let there be. And then what's supposed to come, comes. Then eventually, we find out some sort of truth that God saw it, and He blessed it, and He said it was good, and then there was evening, there was morning, and then it declares which day it was. It's this pattern that's going on for these first six days of creation. But I think it's wise for us to even pause here for a second and understand what Genesis might mean or might not mean about day. Because in our circles, I've talked with many of you about this this week, Jordan, what do you believe about the days of creation? And I'll be honest with you, my, my normal uh, feedback has been, I really don't care a whole lot. <laughs> Maybe I should. Uh, there's great debate in our circles. Even our denomination 20 years ago commissioned a committee to study the length of creation days, which, which views were in keeping with our Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a worthy thing to study. It's a worthy thing to examine. The Hebrew word for day is yom. It refers to, in other places in the Old Testament especially, it refers to this idea of, of an epoch or an era, just a, a very long period of time. Remember maybe text even in the New Testament that a day in the Lord's sight is like a thousand years gone by. A thousand years are like a day in the Lord's sight. I, I do believe from my own mind that any exegetical evidence for anything other than a 24-hour, six-day creation week is unsatisfying. I think that's exactly what happened. I do think that modern theories that tried to take this history and turn it into poetry are far gone in their understanding of the narrative. 
Oh, but either way, where you fall, even in your own mind about the length of these days, the point that we are meant to see from this passage is what? God spoke all things into existence by the word of his power, out of nothing in the space of six days. Because what you need to know from the beginning of this account, even from its opening page, is that what we're looking into here is a sparse historical account of a supernatural act. A sparse historical account of a supernatural act. And so if we go to a sparse historical account of a supernatural act looking for scientific answers to our scientific questions, we're probably not going to get much information along the way. But far from discouraging you to further study, what you want to see even in the course of God speaking all things into existence, He's encouraging us to even scientific inquiry and further study, understanding exactly how it is that He is bringing all things to come to pass as He's creating the heavens and the earth. On Tuesday and Wednesdays during the school year, I teach right down here in front chapel for our day school. And because you're trying to captivate little two-year-olds and three-year-olds' attention, I try to up my prop game for whatever my lesson is for that day. And in one text last year that we were working through is God's promise of presence, that He is always with us. And so I decided that I was going to bring this little tent from our house that my children play in to illustrate, you know, God dwells with his people. Even in the Old Testament, also dwelled with his people in a tent. And so here I am down front, you know, trying to set the scene, set the stage. And I'm sure they're not listening to anything out of my mouth because all they're seeing with my hands is Jordan doesn't know what he's doing with this tent. Pulling out these rods that aren't connecting, can't get things to go into the right spot. And the prop totally fell on its face. It literally did not come to life. And I thought about that afterwards and even encouraged my own mind, hopefully to a point of humility, that yes, I cannot build a tent. Maybe you are like me. I struggle greatly to build a tent. But we serve a God who's a master tent builder. Because what you may not know is that further reflection on Genesis 1 and the rest of the Old Testament often refers to this text as God building a tent constructing a universal tabernacle and dwelling place, a sanctuary where he is going to meet with man. So, for example, Psalm 79, I'm sorry, 79, 78, verse 69 says, God built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. In this great song of comfort in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 22 It says, Yahweh sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. As we're noticing God's creative work in the six days of creation, he's preparing a dwelling place for man, a place where he's going to meet with those whom he creates. And notice how he begins this work We've seen the pattern of day one. What you need to see, students, especially is a correspondence between the first three days and the next three days. So days one through three have a correspondence to days four, five, and six. If you look down at verse four, look down at verse five, you'll see this word that's repeated in each one of those texts, and it's the word separate. Days one through three, I want you to think about as days of separation. Days four through six, we just need to think about them as days of saturation. So what happens on day one, verse three through five? He separates the light and the darkness. Day two, verse six through eight, he separates the waters above from the waters beneath. Day three, verse nine through 13, he separates the dry land from the seas. 
And not just that. Look at verse 11. He says, let the earth sprout vegetation, planting seed, fruit trees, bearing fruit. What you want to know there, even from the outset of God's creative work, He's not against using means to bring about His creative purposes. He tells the trees to grow, the plants to bear fruit. So you've got these days of separation. And then notice how they correspond in verse 14 and following in days 4, 5, and 6. So in day 4, which is 14 through 19, the light and darkness He separated on day 1 now gets saturated. Look at verse 16 with these two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. So kids, what's the greater light to rule the day? The sun. What's the greater light to rule the night? The moon. Day 5, verse 20 through 23, when he separated the waters above and the waters beneath, now he's saturating them. Notice in these texts with birds that will fly in the sky, with sea creatures and things that will swarm about, even commanding them in verse 22, be fruitful, multiply, fill the water in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And then day six, corresponding to day three, there he separated dry land from the seas. And here he is filling up once again the earth with creatures, saying to them, verse 25, and the beasts of the earth he brought about according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. But here, of course, in verse 26 and following, is when we get to what we ought to understand to be the crown of creation, the apex moment, if you will, of God's creative work. Look at what we're told in verse 26 through 27. God said, let us. Now you can think about that for a second if your translation has it right. Uh, every time that the word God shows up in our passage, it's the Hebrew word Elohim, which can be translated gods. It's this plural form, and it's often used when speaking about God and His divine being, talking about His pluralistic majesty, like His plural perfections and His divine attributes. But I think rightly we're understanding it here as this kind of canonical allusion to the triune God that we serve. One nature, three persons, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over everything on the earth that creeps on the earth, verse 27. And so God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, we want to think about, Lord willing, next week, more about God's creation of man, creation of Adam and Eve, as we give attention specifically to that in the remainder of chapter 2. So we'll come back here next week, Lord willing. But what we need to deal with, first of all, and necessarily this morning, though, however, is this idea that God created man in His likeness, in His image, God created them. So students, what does it mean that you have been created in the image of God? Kids, what does it mean that you bear God's likeness? Is it that we somehow look a little bit in our physical appearance like God? Well, the later New Testament reflection on this truth is actually amplifying the spiritual nature of it. Ephesians 4, Colossians 3 says we're created after God's likeness, after His image, in knowledge, in holiness, in righteousness. So there's a spiritual connotation to bearing God's image. But originally here in Genesis chapter 1, the connotation was much more regal, much more royal. 
Because in the ancient Near Eastern world, kings were said to be images of their gods. And what kings would do in their kingdoms and their empires, they would put images of their likeness in the farthest reaches of their empire in order to say, my authority reaches even there. And here is God saying, man and woman created in my image. Rightly understood were to say that man and woman created in God's image mean we are his vice regents on the earth. We are the ones that God has commissioned and even created to extend His authority in the universe. It's a truth that even comes in verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, skip down to the end, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God exercising His regal and royal authority by creating image bearers who will be His vice regents subduing the earth establishing His dominion as the seas cover the earth. And we're right to say, aren't we, that humanity was the crown of creation? Because look at verse 31, what we're told there. God saw everything He had made, and behold, it was very good. This is the first time as this phrase is punctuating God's creative work on the days that He has said it was very good. Previous five days, it was good. But now that his image bearers have been created, it is very good. Uh, for those of you that are Chronicles of Narnia fans, I wonder which book you enjoy the most. I'm not so sure myself which book I enjoy the most, but I do think I have a clear delineated favorite scene. It comes in The Magician's Nephew, where the main characters about halfway through the book are caught up in this riot, this fight on the street, when they're suddenly whisked away to the magical world that they understand to be called Nothing, with a capital N. It's only darkness. It's only silence that surrounds them. But then Lewis writes, in the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth herself. There were no words. There was hardly even a tune, but it was, beyond comparison, the most beautiful noise that the children had ever heard. And if you know the story, the great Lion King Aslan, with no words but with a deep moving melody, is creating the world of Narnia by singing it into existence. And it says the children found the song so beautiful they could hardly bear it. The sense of overwhelming awe that ought to fall upon us as we come to the end of chapter 1. Overwhelming awe at God's creative power, the incredible might of His Word, speaking all things into existence from eternity past when He alone was in existence. But He's not done, is He? He's created. He spoke. But now notice verse 1 through 3 of chapter 2. God rested. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from His work that He had done in creation. God rested on the Sabbath day uh, there's something interesting. If you just go back later today and just read through this text, if you, were, if you will, with lenses of sevens on. There are sevens everywhere in this text. If you knew Hebrew, you'd discover in chapter 1, verse 1, there's seven words in Hebrew. 
There are seven divine fiats. These series of sevens punctuate his creative work along the way, and it's on day seven that God rests. And if you know the Hebrew word seven and its significance, it's pointing towards perfection. It's pointing towards fulfillment. And here it is on day seven that God rested. So kids, do you think God rested because he was tired? You should say no. He did not rest because he was tired. He rested because what? It was complete. It was his sign and seal of it is perfectly done. And this, of course, becomes the reason for the fourth commandment that we read earlier this morning in our text. Why is it that the nation of Israel was given this fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy? Well, God rested on the seventh day. It also establishes, in my mind, the natural law of Scripture that humanity is meant to rest one day in seven. Because we, of course, need rest from our weary labors. As Jesus even would say in Mark chapter 2, the Sabbath was not made for man. Or the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, God rested, signaling that He indeed is the God who created. He is the God who spoke all things to existence. He is the God who has created just right. He is Lord over all things. He is Lord over everything and everyone. And if you know anything about English history in the 1640s, you know that England was in the midst of a, a bloody, terrible civil war but there was a group of pastors throughout most of the 1640s in England, pastors and theologians who were meeting in the Westminster Abbey. Parliament had commissioned them to put together a new doctoral standard for the nation of England. And it's from that assembly that we get the Westminster Confession of Faith and catechisms that make up our church's confessional standards. And somewhere along the way in their deliberations and discussions, they got to the shorter catechism question that asks, what is God? I began to think about how can we put into short compass, how can we put into few words, how can we put into biblical truth, packed into one short sentence, a definition of what is God. So a historian relates that each man felt the unapproachable sublimity of the divine idea suggested by these words, what is God? And all shrunk from the too sacred task in awestruck, reverential fear. So students, children, try to answer that question. What is God? According to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 2 verse 3, what is God? Well, as we begin to close, I want to try to fill out an answer for you from Genesis chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 2. There are, of course, many things we could say from this text that would be an accurate answer to what is God. But there are two things in summary that are, at the very least, the bare minimum of what it means to come to this creator, king in faith and true praise. Because we want to see not only the truths about who God is, but what that necessarily means for us as those that he has created. So number one, God is the sovereign to whom we are accountable. God is the sovereign to whom we are all accountable. So I said earlier at the beginning, this text for many people in our evangelical churches today becomes something of a battleground of apologetics truth. Now, it would have been a battleground for the ancient Israelites that first received this story from Moses, but it would have been a battleground on polemics more than apologetics. Here's what I mean. 
Notice how Moses has constructed this story in such a way to rule out any number of unbiblical worldviews. It rules out atheism in the beginning, God. It rules out polytheism in the beginning, God alone created the heavens and the earth. It rules out humanism, for God, not man, sits on the throne. It rules out evolutionism. You see all the times in the text when it says he appointed creation, each according to its kind. There's no evolvement from primordial soup of any person or thing in this world. Doesn't it also rule out any sort of error we might find along the way related to any number of worldly man-made philosophies. It's a polemical argument that says that God alone is sovereign, so you are accountable to Him. We are accountable to Him alone. And that's the way it's meant to be. Isn't it true that even Romans chapter 1 talks about the divine nature of God, His eternal power, His essential attributes have been made known through His creative work. And you remember what verse 20 of Romans chapter 1 says? All men are without excuse. He is the sovereign, and you are accountable to Him alone. Not just that, He is the Creator to whom we owe adoration. He's the Creator to whom we owe adoration. Isn't it true sometimes if you just escape the concrete juggle of the DFW Metroplex, afforded the opportunity to go look out on the Grand Canyon, maybe look up to Mount Everest, Maybe look out over the vastness of the Pacific. Maybe look up to the northern lights. Maybe see the Arctic chill of Antarctica, the desert heat of the Sahara, or a bright, beautiful, brilliant, starry, shiny night. What is man in the face of such splendor in creation declaring the glory of God? So it's why throughout the Bible what we often find is people praising God because He created all things. When was the last time you praised God? Reveled in His creative work. Think about the constant cry of the heavenly hosts that sit around God's throne in Revelation chapter 1. It says, worthy are you, worthy, 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 holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. Why? Because by your eternal power you created the heavens and the earth. He's the sovereign to whom we owe allegiance. He's the creator to whom we owe all of our adoration. And if you're anything like me, you hear those two twin truths from Genesis, and you think, oh my, I've fallen so far short. My small praise and adoration condemns me. Maybe you recognize that your life is little more than darkness, chaos, formlessness, emptiness. Now what you need to know is that even though he doesn't show up in this passage directly, there's hope found in Jesus Christ. For just as God called out the nation of Israel from the chaos of slavery through the redeeming work into the promised land of life and rest, so does God now call people out of the chaos of sin into life and rest through the work of Jesus Christ. Because who does the New Testament say that Jesus is? The sovereign creator, ruler, savior of all things. In the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He is what? The image of the invisible God. 
By Him, all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth. God has spoken to us in these last days through Him who is what? The light of the world. Spoken to us by His Son who is the exact imprint of His nature, the radiance of His glory, the brilliance of His essence. And it's even by the very word of Jesus Christ that all things are sustained. So what does that mean for us then? Well, faith, adoration, trust, repentance towards Jesus Christ, joining with the song of creation, all creatures of our God and King. Lift up your voice. With us, sing. Alleluia. Because Jesus Christ is Lord of all, the sovereign creator and ruler of the universe. Let us bow before him together. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who is almighty, sovereign, that you are all-powerful. Father, help us even this morning to recognize our weakness. Help us to repent of our sinfulness. Help us to rely upon you because you alone are gracious. Lord, we want to be a people who rightly understand who you are, that you are the creator and the sovereign. We want to be a people who rightly respond as we should with adoration and holy accountability. So, Father, we pray that you would give us humility before you. We pray that you would humble our hearts that we might overflow in praise and boasting and adoration to you alone, that we'd be rich in Christ, sustained by his covenant powerful word, so we might exalt you each and every day. Father, grow in us a majestic, reverential fear of who you are, that we might indeed walk in faithfulness towards you. We do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand.